Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 36th episode of 2021. This morning, my friends in Europe announced that fiber to the premise deployment will increase by 67% over the next five years in 39 countries in Europe, passing 302 million homes and businesses. It's clear that this historic fiber investment cycle that we're experiencing is not limited to North America. You know, back here in the U.S., you know, the House returns from recess on September 20th, and the Speaker has promised to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure deal by September 27th, which is now 12 days away. As you know, this bill includes $65 billion for broadband infrastructure. While the September 27th date is a non-binding target, we don't expect a vote to slip much past that date as the deadline for surplus transportation transportation funding expires on September 30th. We remain confident that the bill will pass the House, and we still believe that the House will take the Senate bill as is. Um, we have stated, as we stated in the past several weeks, we anticipate a signing ceremony for the President in the mid-October timeframe. So stay tuned as we will continue to keep a watchful eye on this process. You know, as our nation continues to ramp out the deployment of ultra-fast broadband connectivity to previously unserved and underserved communities and offer subscribers exciting new services and capabilities. This also provides an opportunity for cyber criminals who are eyeing millions of new potential victims and higher speed access for their malicious activities. Today's session will discuss cyber threats and trends and their implications for rural broadband service providers and their subscribers. And good, again, good morning and welcome everybody. I'm Gary Bolton, the president and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. You know, last time we met with uh, Sean Van Slyke of SEMO Electric Co-op and Go SEMO Fiber to discuss their success in deploying fiber broadband to their community and how they're helping other rural electric co-ops and providers with their fiber deployment plans. This morning, our guests are Terry Young of A10 Networks and Gabriel Gums, a cybersecurity expert and host of Privacy Please podcast. And discussion of cyber threats and trends and their implications for rural broadband service providers. Terry Young is the Director of Service Provider Marketing at A10 Networks. And prior to A10, uh, Terry led mobile network product marketing at Palo Alto Networks. And among her previous roles, she was at AT&T and has been has more than 20 years experience in the telecommunications industry. Uh, Gabriel Gum is a cybersecurity expert and host of Privacy Please podcast. Gabriel is an IT security thought leader with over 20 years of leadership experience. He specializes in intrusion detection and prevention and recognizes the growing security challenges that exist with risk management and the current work from anywhere dynamics that we're introducing new challenges across the physical landscape from cities to small towns, Fortune 500s to small and medium-sized businesses. Gabe is an um, advisor uh, on the advisory board to InfoSec World and eGRC.com. So welcome, Terry and Gabe. Thank you for having us, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Thanks very much for having us. 
It's great to have you here. And for our audience, you know, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll get to Q&A at the end of the session. So over to you, Terry. Hi, thanks, Gary. Uh, thanks very much. And, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on, um, for our presentation. Uh, this is us again. <laughs> so next slide. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'd like to start by kind of pausing and thinking about how much the last year and a half and the pandemic has really changed uh, our perspective of what broadband connectivity uh, now means. I mean, broadband connectivity is clearly no longer considered uh, a nice to have. It's now considered an essential. And I think there's a huge amount of social and political will that has been generated as a result you know, of the pandemic. And as Gary just mentioned, uh, this is a globally, we're seeing this happen. Um, this photo is from a UN website. And I like to show it because I think it, it kind of captures the emotion that most people have now when they think about what broadband connectivity means. I mean, it used to be maybe we think about broadband as being, you know, better entertainment, um, you know, uh, maybe gaming. But now I think when what people think about how critical broadband is, what they think about is, gee, if I don't have a good broadband connectivity and safe broadband connectivity, I may not be able to work. I may not be able to get the health services that I need, and I may not be able to educate my children. So it's taken on a very personal meaning, I think, for most people. And I think that's important for service providers to recognize, and especially those of you that are starting to build out you know, new, new networks, because your subscribers' expectations, I really believe, have changed. And I think we're kind of at a turning point, and that you all have an opportunity to help these underserved communities not only catch up, but really leap forward. And strong cybersecurity uh, is part of that. Because there's been a, a huge increase in all kinds of malicious activity over the last year and a half. Um, unfortunately, cyber criminals take advantage of you know, whatever is in the news cycle to try to weaponize the, their existing tools and uh, from uh, phishing campaigns to um, uh, text messaging to robocalls. There's just malicious activity of all types of increase that are uh, weaponizing COVID-19 news and really elevating the fear. So this is just three examples that I picked up that shows you kind of the kinds of things that uh, your subscribers may have seen. It includes, you know, uh, text messages on mobile phones, as well as, you know, all kinds of emails that look very legitimate. Uh, trying to get people to click on links to um, to get money or to they think they're being tracked, um, but having to do but weaponizing the COVID-19 uh, information, and there's been uh, you know across the board all over the world a uh, huge increase in activities. So what that means for your subscribers and and for you to be aware of is that the awareness, the public awareness of cybersecurity and the risk is much higher than it was so a year and a half ago. So you may be getting questions from your subscribers that you didn't have before. They may be asking you for more services that they didn't ask for before. They may start asking you, instead of do you have the fastest network, do you have the safest network? So I think it's a real shift in, in expectations that, uh, that should be kept into consideration. Gabe, did you have any other comments that you wanted to add? 
Yeah, I think <clears throat> equally with the outbreak, what we've seen as the world has went into shutdown, certainly here stateside, we've seen folks kind of migrating out of some of the big cities too and moving back to, to maybe some more rural areas. And their expectations also of what providers are providing, um, they'll bring those big city expectations with them to a large degree as well too. Yeah, and I, I think that's very true. So, um, and that shift in traffic for what, what used to be uh, suburban areas are now being used for, for business purposes. So there's just a lot of shifts taking place that I, I think you just can't assume that the subscriber profile that you had, you know, even two years ago is the same as what you should build towards going forward. These are some general stats on, uh, on all the different types of activities that I just mentioned. Uh, as I said, uh, the weaponized COVID-19 and all, all types of vectors has, has increased. Um, the FTC estimated there's over $400 million in COVID-19 fraud incidents in the first year. Um, there's a 300% growth in texting, 300% growth in DDoS attacks. Park Associates recently did a, um, a survey in where almost 80% of households are now concerned about security and privacy, and over a third have experienced a a data security uh, incident of, of some kind. Um, one of the favorite tar targets, unfortunately, is, is K through 12. And uh, schools have also been hit hard with a, a large number of, um, uh, that are publicly disclosed of cybersecurity incidents. So all of this really, again, you know, elevates the, the concern and the awareness and, and the fear of subscribers mm -hmm. as consumer as, as well as uh, business. Mm -hmm. uh, next slide, please. Oh, Gabe, go ahead. Yeah, there's yeah. Back up and hang on this side for a second, because there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of interesting things under the the hood here when we start looking at it from a cybersecurity perspective, and I think it, it's important for subscribers to think about also the DDoS attacks in particular. A lot of a lot of rural areas have seen that as kind of smokescreens um, as data gets exfiltrated out and ransomware out of hospitals and things of that nature. But one of the things the attackers have been equally doing is leveraging all of the new machines that have come online in these rural areas so that they can then perform those DDoSs outwards to others as well too. And that that itself has uh, some impact on on your subscription lines. Yeah. So I want to just pause and have you think about how how different the business model is of a cyber criminal versus what your typical business model is. Uh, at least in the service providers that I've always talked to, uh, they they have a strong sense of community, a strong sense of mission, and wanting to help the community uh, have provide good service you know, to the community, to the area that they serve. Service providers, fiber to the home providers will invest about $1,800 per location in, in capital investment. And as you know, the, the deployment takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months or even longer to, you know, for the entire area. And usually, and service providers usually have like you know, a, a specific geographic area that they can serve. So their target audience, if you will, is fairly limited. Uh, the cyber criminal, on the other hand, I think sometimes we think about cyber criminals like we've seen in the movies, where they're these, either these brilliant coders or um, uh, you know, just really, really super smart you know, people that you know, uh, high criminals. And the, the truth is, you, know, you don't have to be that smart to be a cyber criminal. You know, you have to have some basic computer skills. You have to have a little under 200 bucks. You 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 rent DDoS or, or other malicious um, tools uh, on the dark web. And you have potentially billions of devices, you know, globally mm -hmm. that you can look at because you're just scanning for vulnerable devices that haven't changed their password or whatever they haven't done. 
And it's really, you know, not that difficult. I actually talked to a, a, a coworker of mine who used to work for a company. He had an opportunity to interview a cyber criminal gang, which I thought was fascinating, uh, that, uh, that, that did ransomware. And, uh, you know, and they're like college kids. I mean, they're like playing video games in their spare time and then doing this to make some extra money. So the cyber criminals are in it for the money. It's a business. I mean, they are, you know, they don't have to do that much. They don't have to invest that much time, that much money. And uh, they can, you know, make as much money probably as they, they, they care to invest in. We've yeah, seen some ahead. additional uh, some additional shifts in more of their business models as well too. So you mentioned like you know not having to be terribly sophisticated. The more sophisticated gangs have created affiliate networks and yeah. they've created tools for everyone else to use. So they've simplified the tooling themselves. This is this is how great of a business model yeah, it is. So now they, <laughs> yeah. So then they they send all their affiliates out to basically find targets, and when they identify targets, they will find some minor way in the door, and then they go and call the more sophisticated hackers who will then come in, perform the big attack that you hear about, wipe you out, shut down your networks, those types of things. Um, so they really figured out well how to farm this out, affiliate out. I mean, they've got uh, kickback programs and profit sharing. It is it is certainly not just the shadowy clothed figure um, in a basement. Uh, those days are well long gone if they were ever here in the first place. And they use the latest uh, automation tools, you know, cloud technology to- uh, Absolutely. That, they don't have to deal with legacy technology that they're trying to move. I mean, so, so. Uh, I feel like we need to be wearing hoodies for this conversation. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> those 22 million new broadband subscribers that are estimated by the FCC, and I know that number is controversial, but say it's 22 million. Um, they, they look at that as like 22 million new potential victims and potentially yeah. victims that maybe have less experience in dealing with uh, cyber activity and a new broadband highway to get there. So that's kind of how they how they view um, the market. Uh, next what, slide. What percentage of this is like nation states? I mean, I'm gonna talk a, a little bit about that. I don't know about percentage. Do you have any actual numbers, Gabe? I think it's a small percentage. Yeah, so the, yeah, it is a small percentage. The truth is most attacks are opportunistic, right? Which is why the, that affiliate model works. Finding something that has just been left on the network completely unpatched, untouched, you, you, you name it. Um, the nation state activity, which is also very hard to trace for a number of reasons, the least of which is oftentimes they will do things like come in through something else that they've attacked, like someone's home um, or university. In fact, those are popular targets for nation states as pivot points. Um, but, we, but from what we do know, it does represent less than two or so percent of the attacks certainly that you know about. The, the real challenge is there are the laws regarding cybersecurity breach reporting, um, although we've standardized most of them across the country, everyone has some type of notification for individuals. There's still a lot of nebulous data in there because organizations don't have to report everything. So we don't really always have a great view. So if you consider everything that we know and how bad it is, and that's just what we know, that's literally the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, in most across the world, I mean, even service providers that are required to report to regulators, those aren't made public uh, usually. And there's a lot of incidents that are yeah. you know, just not reported at all, because they're not big enough, uh, or um, uh, uh, they don't, they haven't been discovered yet. So I think maybe we have kind of a mindset that because it's a small location, it's remote or it's rural. I mean, why why would a cyber criminal want to attack that? I mean. 
uh, I, I think that's really a, a mis misconception and that these locations are just as vulnerable to say DDoS, which is one of the areas that we track uh, as, as any other location. DDoS, by the way, is used a lot of times as a, um, a deterrent, uh, not a deterrent, a distraction from planting ransomware and another malicious activity. But so, so this chart is showing, uh, we, we tracked what we call DDoS weapons, which is IoT and connected devices that have been compromised and that are available to be used for launching DDoS attacks. Um, and this is from our latest DDoS weapons report, which by the way, there's another report that's coming out in about in a few weeks, um, which you can get from our website. But what this shows is that um, most DDoS attacks, even though we read about, like you mentioned, no nation state and these, you know, the things that make the public media, uh, the exciting news are, are not the majority of attacks. The, mo the very, very large DDoS attacks are a, a minority. Most attacks are fairly small. Most DDoS attacks are under five, 10 gigabits, usually like around five, six gigabits. And while for a typical service provider, especially a larger service provider, this may be under the radar of what they would really track, it, it, it could be devastating to one of the downstream customers. And if that downstream customer is like the one hospital that's in that uh, you know, rural area, clearly it can be devastating to that community. So DDoS attacks, even the small ones, even as you start deploying you know, edge and have like smaller capacity, um, uh, pops uh, out there. Uh, the DDoS attacks are uh, extremely can be extremely damaged not only to uh, the, the the network infrastructure and availability, but to your downstream customers as well. And I think paying attention to who those downstream customers and what the impact of them is is another area that service providers can explore and see what more they can do. Oh, go ahead, Gates. Yeah, your, your point about remote locations. The thing that the attackers know is that in remote locations, they are more likely to find. Um, uh, healthcare services and pu public sector services, and unfortunately, they those sec services those sectors have been very much willing to pay ransom. So they they yeah, know they that have. those opportunities exist. So this I thought you would just find interesting. This is actually a screenshot from um, uh, our research team. Uh, they 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 capture uh, malware uh, through honeypots and then play with it in their sandbox in, in the laboratory. So they they captured this uh, of a. a of a uh, an IoT device and, and the botnet malware that um, that they then executed. And what, what's kind of interesting is that you know first of all is the amount of time time that it takes from launching it, executing it, to when they start receiving the commands from the the, the instructions from their command and control centers. Like 26 seconds. It's very very fast. The other thing that is I think interesting is that the first thing this bot exploit does is it starts looking for uh, looking for friends. It's looking for other uh, devices in in this immediate area, whether it's an enterprise or whatever it is, and that they can also ping and also get uh, infected with 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 the malware, so they can kind of join the group. Uh, so um, this this attack happened within uh, like I said 26 seconds, and and they actually had this stop the the uh, experiment because it, it turned out it was targeting a local bank so they had to stop it but it just kind of shows you the speed and how quickly it can and and how quickly it can ramp up and also that that the num the number of devices now with like 42 billion uh, devices expected of iot devices you know globally just that show quantity it doesn't take um, you know that many to to launch an effective uh, ddos attack I think depending on who you speak to also, folks have different 
misconceptions of what IoT is. Yeah, um, and, yeah and kind of lose sight of it is literally everything from the Apple Watch on your 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 wrist to the smart meter outside your home to the devices, the medical devices in, inside of those environments. So all of those things represent um, IoT devices, all of which unfortunately do not tend to have the same level of security as as more of your, your desktop devices and so forth. And so they do make they make very, very good targets. We, um, late last year, we commissioned a uh, study with a company called Hard and Stands. You may be familiar with them. They're, uh, um, they focus on telco infrastructure uh, security. And they profiled um, eight different well-known, well-publicized security incidents um, across the globe, what had happened over the last couple of years. And this is a paper that is available from our website as well. But what, what you're asking about nation states, and I think what is interesting is like the, the breadth of different types of, uh, of incidents that, that he was representing, because telcos really have four domains that they have to protect. And depending on how large the telco is, these domains can be really physically separated or they can be you know, kind of combined. So that includes the, uh, the production network, the customer facing uh, uh, network, that includes um, the customer-facing IT network, like you know, websites and retail stores or um, other um, uh, web, web web applications that that your subscribers would access. It includes the internal IT for your employees, um, as and um, it also includes maybe a separate IT network for kind of the OSS BSS systems, kind of the support systems that are behind the network. All of these have to be protected, and what this study showed is that all of them are vulnerable. And that most of these attacks, most of these incidents, there's only, there's only like one or two that was profiled in this study, uh, they're not attributed to nation states, so they are particularly unique to telecom protocols. So they're general, uh, well-known, <laughs> tried and true attack methods that um, have just not been um, you know, protected against. Historically, telcos have not had have not had to focus as much I think on cybersecurity as much as uh, uh, enterprise has partly because they haven't really had to it hasn't really been um, the focus of cyber attacks much in the past and so a lot of as a general statement that may not be true for your company but as a general statement that often telcos are failing to invest in just what's available today it's not anything new or exciting or different just basic uh, technologies uh, for DDoS protection of firewalls and these basic things, as well as um, the um, uh, training of your employees and that type of thing um, that, that's widely available and uh, not investing as much as, say, the enterprise uh, realm has. I think what's interesting, at least for me, considering I've been in this industry so long, I'm almost ashamed to say it out loud, but nonetheless, um, th what we I consider to be... <laughs> that's fair. That is fair. What we consider kind of modern hacking today originally got its roots in attacking telcos, right? Like the 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 precursor to the modern hacker was the the quote freaker, the telephone attacker. Um, but what I find interesting about the, this bit of research also is all of those all of those attacks that you see in the right, they're all different vectors. So it's not like they're all using the same way to get in. And then really what that says to me too, is that there is no one, uh, well, if we just do these two things, we'll be protected. Those are all very different attack vectors and successful ones too. I think this is yours, Gabe. You wanna talk through this one? Yeah, so the 
kind of building on the last slide in terms of the attacks, what I think is important to point out here is just the the number of records that have been breached. Like if we, we get all the way down to, to it, the thing that the attacker is always after is data. Um, whether they want to ransom it and hold it from you or they want to use it so that they can perform additional fraud. A lot of this data is used to then carry on other types of criminal activities, which are very personally impacting um, to, to, to the communities in particular. So everything from credit card fraud to we saw an a ridiculous amount of unemployment fraud throughout the last two years because of COVID. So a lot of these records being stolen and used for those types of uh, for those types of attacks. And just from the telecom industry in particular, uh, you, you look at the number of assets. You know that that 39 million, those by and large do represent actual people in terms of uh, you know whether or not they were able to receive their credit card information, passwords, and so forth. It's a lot of data. Uh, so even when you think about again, you know maybe rural areas not having much what's not what may not look much on a larger scale um, certainly does have a lot in terms of just the number of records they, they can still get access to uh, a number of other issues inside of uh, with, with regards to to where telecom has some additional exposure. Some of these things we, we've seen addressed over the years, but a lot of password reuses, um, even at the the telecom level. So, I mean, it's been years since we've been shipping routers all with the same, you know, default admin passwords and things of that nature. But we still see we still see a lot of this behavior in in those types of networks. Um, we touched uh, again before on the number of assets and, and PII assets. Just another uh, another look at that from from this angle. This is all personally identifiable information. So information that when is in an attacker's hand actually allows them to, to be able to, to perpetrate as someone else. Um, we see a lot of very intentional targeting of C-level executives. In fact, on your last slide, Terry, that very first attack was a crypto attack that was aimed yeah. just at C-level executives. Um, mm -hmm. So we see, yeah, we, we see a lot of that. You, you think again in, in small or, or rural areas where you may not have a lot of people, you still have what, uh, what the attackers consider um, whales and fish is it like big, you know big big targets and they're big personal targets and so equally going after the the head of a municipality or the head of a, a healthcare system is just as valuable of a target um, as going after all all of the employees. Yeah, and and, and said most most attacks are very well known, tried and true, basic protocols uh, and, and DDoS attacks like eighty percent of the attacks come from like eight protocols yes so and there's like you know, 30 or so protocols that are possible so uh most of these are just things that people just haven't you know taken care of for different reasons so uh, just as far as recommendations for those of you that are uh looking to uh, to um improve your network and looking to uh, build out uh, to new subscribers is you generally really think that we should um to really reevaluate your role in protecting your subscribers as well as your network and start looking at what you have today in terms of your basic cybersecurity hygiene. Uh, deploy more monitoring and, and patching uh, for all four uh, domains in telco networks and generally just make security as a, as a high priority because I think your subscribers and uh, business as well as consumer are now looking for that. And you will need to continue to adapt because the, the landscape, the threat landscape, is is continually adapting, and it's 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 you have you have to stay on top of it. You may be able to recoup some security costs through monetization uh, where possible, like as as uh, offering, for, for example, a DDoS protection as a service or other premium services to your subscribers. And if that's not really real, realistic for your market, you know, if, provide more, more information options for your 
consumer and business subscribers and as I said, and just in general evaluate your role and how you approach the security and how you offer that to your customers. I say, the only thing I'd add to that is for those folks that don't really know where to get started, um, turn to one of the existing frameworks. NIST has frameworks out there for data security that are that that are very easily approachable. There's also the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, which is uh, backed by the U.S. government. All these things lay out very good frameworks for for how organizations can can kind of approach this themselves if they don't know where to start. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time but um i mean we did get a bunch of good questions along the lines of you know why are criminals seeking k-12 you know what 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 would be the rationale to target um that segment and also i think there's some pushback on your 150 dollars for you know um, putting up your um cyber attacks where you know it's um, kind of ransomware as a service and more of the sophisticated um, tools that are available and then we also saw some questions about the ethics trends of you know hands-off targets is that viable or just someone you know the nation states um, jerk and a leash of you know where they have are allowing or funding campaigns but um, so maybe I can get you guys to follow up on those offline um, absolutely but I really appreciate Terry and Gabe for you know I know this is a very serious important target our discussion and we appreciate you sharing your expertise and knowledge. Uh, so next week, um, our topic is gonna to be, Survey Says, how are operators planning to deploy 10 gig pond with our good friend, Stephen Hardy from Lightwave, who's gonna discuss the results from a recent survey conducted by Lightway and the Fiber Broadband Associations. The findings from the survey won Cunder investment plans and 10 gig pond over the next two years and the technology supplier preferences. So stay tuned. So you're not gonna to wanna to miss that. Thanks again for joining today, and we'll look forward to seeing you guys next Wednesday.